0: I'm Karl McCullman. I am Kevin Johnson.
1: I'm Cassidy Hall, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash Encountering Silence that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash silence to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all-too-noisy world. Joining us on the podcast today is Parker J. Palmer. Parker is a writer, speaker, and activist. He holds a PhD in sociology from UC Berkeley. As founder and senior partner emeritus of the Center for Courage and Renewal, His work focuses on issues in education, community, leadership, spirituality, and social change. He's the author of numerous books, including Healing the Heart of Democracy, The Courage to Teach, A Hidden Wholeness, Let Your Life Speak, The Act of Life, and most recently, On the Brink of Everything. He is a member of the Religious Society of Friends, commonly known as the Quakers, and he and his wife, Sharon Palmer, live in Madison, Wisconsin. Parker, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you, Cassidy. Good to be with you.
1: So, one of the things we like to dive into um, right away, first of all, I, I'm actually curious are you a coffee or tea drinker? I see. I'm drinking
2: water right
1: now. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Um, so, one of the things we like to initially begin with is if you have like an initial memory of an encounter with silence, perhaps from your childhood, the first time you really recall. Um, meeting silence?
2: That's a, it's an interesting question to me, because when you're a kid, of course, you meet things without having names for them, and, and you don't know what you're doing. So I'm, I'm tempted to say I was all over silence before silence was cool. But of course, <laughs> silence has, has a long history of being cool in many traditions and places. But I, when I was a kid, I really enjoyed um, being alone. Uh, I I was glad to occupy a house where neither my parents nor my sisters were there for a while, although it was a very loving family. Always glad for them to return. I was glad to come home after school and not be engaged up to my neck in extracurricular activities. But Mm -hmm. A little attic room uh, in Wilmette, Illinois, where I grew up, and I would go up there and and build model airplanes, as a lot of boys did back in the day. And it was, you know, looking back, I loved building the model airplanes, but it was silent time. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no chat with balsa wood. Uh, and so there I was being quiet and really enjoying it. So I, I feel like silence has uh, roots in my life. Before I knew the name of what was happening, reading was also a great pastime with me. I loved getting lost in Treasure Island, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, just the silent experience of being in a different world, a different place and time. so, yeah, I think it was it was a good question for me to contemplate when I got your list because uh, it took me back to some memories that I didn't of things I didn't understand the why and the wherefore of at the time,
1: mm, yeah. And in your, a lot of your writing, you're very clearly an activist and I'm wondering about, you know, so how silence has impacted you as kind of that meeting place of yourself in order to, you know, emerge and, and be an activist, whether that's in writing or action and, well, writing is action. Um, but you also write about, you know, Merton and the true self and things like this. And I wonder how silence has been that, that meeting place for you to be an activist.
2: Uh, again, a wonderful question for me because it takes me back to 1969 when I finished my PhD in sociology, and um, at Berkeley, you know, I was I had spent five years preparing for an academic career, but by 1969, the cities were burning. My heroes had been assassinated. Um, Vietnam was roaring a roaring fire, or not only over there but here too. And I felt strongly called to use my sociology in the streets rather than in the academy. So I essentially left the academy and and never returned except for visiting professorships and writing a lot about higher education. And I became a community organizer in Washington, D.C. That's very hard work. I did it for five years, and I was a pretty thin-skinned person, uh, even though I felt this call. I didn't know what to do with the slings and arrows, so by the end of that first year where I felt like I was crashing and burning, I was looking for spiritual solace that I had never really found either growing up in the mainline Methodist church or studying religion in college or going to Union Theological Seminary for a year. Uh, I learned nothing about the contemplative tradition, the mystical stream that runs through all religious traditions. So, a little story. I'm in my work as a community organizer in the D.C. area. I'm on lunch break one day. I wander into a used bookstore, which I like frequenting, looking for a book that a friend had recommended, which was The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. It wasn't there, but in this alphabetically arranged shelf, where it might have been, was a book by Thomas Merton called The Seven-Story Mountain. And I thought, hey, two Toms, two <laughs> two last names beginning with M, and two mountains. <laughs> it's close enough. Merton will do. So I took him <laughs> home. I had no idea who he was. It was the year after he died. And like millions of people around the planet, I became enthralled with this story of a young man who had lived a, what he regarded as a wastrel life until age 27, when he entered the Trappist Monastery uh, in the wooded hills of Kentucky. And I started learning about this contemplative tradition, and I started finding solace, in, first in his story. You know, you don't—I was married with three kids, so becoming a monk wasn't a live option for me at that moment. Um, as as appealing as that life seemed. Um, and oh I wasn't Catholic incidentally either, so I had some obstacles in my way, but there were just reading the story um, it was was a, a source of solace and a source of encouragement, just the simple knowledge that someone as remarkable as Thomas Merton had struggled with some of the same things I had and I mm. began to recognize that. The burnout I was beginning to feel was about six months away as a terminal burnout, if I didn't start practicing some things that would you know help me avoid it. And silence was one of those things. Um, it did all kinds of things to me. I mean, I, I think silence isn't just isn't just rest. Uh, for me, the impact of silence is not only solace but disturbance. Um, you, you start, silence forces you to look at your life uh, in, in some very challenging ways. And I, I think in our culture, that's one of the reasons silence is not popular. It's one of the reasons we fill the air with noise and we fill our minds with noise, because we avoid having to take that deep dive into ourselves, which is not only a dive into our giftedness and into the graces of life, the gift of life, it's also a dive into our shadows and into all the things that are compelling us for the wrong reasons mm. and I started to deal with very simple things as millions of people have Parker, you know I would i would I would realize and sort of say to myself without putting it into words Parker, you have a lot of ego in. In, in this community organizing you're doing. You know, you want to win, you want to look cool. And as long as you cling to that kind of motivation or, or let it run unfettered, you're, you're gonna burn out big time. And then there were other places where I came to a realization that I was able to put in, in words only later, but it came out of silence. And that was that burnout really isn't isn't giving too much of what you have. It's trying to give what you don't have. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. don't know what you have and don't have until you go inward. I had a lot of idealism. I had a lot of oughts. And they're too th- that's too thin to sustain you in challenging work like community organizing around racial justice, which was the work I was doing. Mm. And, you know, I'm far from the first activist who has either— gone over the edge or realized, I need an inward life. I need a contemplative life. I need silence. Um, Somewhere in the next few years, I wrote a little essay called Escape and Engagement, and uh, was playing with these words. uh, The the escape really isn't really escape. It's it's getting you you grounded more deeply into whatever is the authentic ground of your activism. Mm. So after five years, um, and I won't, I'll just hint at the rest of the story. I mean, I'm 80 years old and the rest of the story would take us longer than you have.
1: Now, now aren't you only 79?
2: Yeah, I'm faking it a little just to seem, <laughs> old, but, uh, I'm on my way to 80 in a few months. Okay. And, um, So, you know, the next step for me was to take a sabbatical, what I thought was a one-year sabbatical, from my community organizing, and um, uh, go to a Quaker living learning community, adult study center called Pendle Hill near Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. and start to learn uh, this Quaker way of life, which has always combined silence with activism, Mm -hmm. something I couldn't find in the other traditions with which I was familiar, and um, ended up, that sabbatical ended up extending to 11 years of life in this Quaker community where I became Dean of Studies and had the gift of daily meeting for worship, not just once a week, but every day, start the day, 45 to 60 minutes of Quaker meeting for worship, which is rooted in silence. And uh, a lot happened there, which maybe we'll touch on later.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, to follow up based on that, especially escape and engagement, we talk here on the podcast a lot about monastic traditions and contemplative traditions and the various ways that silence and action go hand in hand. And as you said, that silence does more than just... Allow us to rest, but it actually disturbs us, you know, and and so that kind of sparks. And we again, we talk about that as well. I, I'm kind of curious. What is the most surprising thing that you can recall that silence has basically taught you about that balance or that interaction between silence and engagement?
2: Well, let me let me tell a, first of all a story from Pendle Hill. Mm. Uh, Please. Uh, starting in 1974, 74, 75 was my adult student year there, and then the next 10 years as dean of studies or writer in residence. Um, My early experiences of Quaker, of silent meeting were extremely annoying. (laughs) 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 I I would have found... uh, I would have found monastic life annoying even quicker, I think.
3: Not <laughs> uh, <Well>, surprising.
2: <laughs> I, I would agree. <laughs> it wasn't me. So, um, I, and I expressed my annoyance to, you know, I was, I'm I'm a kind of a paradox, like Merton is a paradox. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've always said, Merton is the noisiest silent monk who ever lived. Right, with oh, yeah. the exactly. Possible exception of of uh, Martin Luther. Right. Because Merton, Merton wrote sixty books in his lifetime, and after he died, they published another sixty from his deep journals. I, I call it the first recorded case of perish and publish. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But, uh, <laughs> so. I expressed my annoyance, and I'm glad I did, because some wise Quaker elders kind of sat me down, and they didn't, they didn't say, well, you know, you don't get it, or what's wrong with you. They asked me honest, open questions, as, as mm. Quakers like to do, mm. what's going on? And what I began to understand was that in the silence, my inherited, intellectualized Christian faith was coming apart of the scenes. Mm. It was falling down around my head because all all I had was growing up in a church where there was preaching. I did have a youth group where there was an experience of community that w- was very formative for me. Mm. But a lot of it was in the head, and then Union Theological Seminary was all head all the time. Mm-hmm. And at Berkeley, where I studied the sociology of religion, it was not only all head all the time, it was Debunking religion with sociology, you know, which I've always found a very strange practice like uh, As I say when I when I talk to faculty who as a Harvard Dean once once says Don't 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 try to talk to faculty about religion. They think they're gonna get the cooties yeah, <laughs> The a, a great line but um because I say to them when I talk about this in, in academic settings, I say, you know, no, no physicist ever won a Nobel Prize by telling subatomic particles what they are. <laughs> <laughs> they, you know that they that they suck or that they're illusions <laughs> or, or or anything of the sort. Pure fantasies. You know, right. stop pretending you exist, guys. You know. No, <laughs> It's not how you win a Nobel Prize. You, really you win a Nobel Prize by listening and paying attention and, and being respectful mm. and, and somehow obedient to the voice of the thing you're studying, mm. right? right? So, why not do that with religion? Well, anyway, I had a very intellectualized religion, and it was coming apart around me because in Quakerism, the constant emphasis is the constant question is, what canst thou know experientially? Right? It's the ancient, the, the 16th, 17th century form of the question. Mm-hmm. What, what, what faith proclamations can you make mm-hmm. that are grounded in your experience? Mm-hmm. And, and I had a, a whole lot of faith proclamations that, as far as I could tell, had no experiential grounding. Mm-hmm. Um, none at all let's take resurrection, which I'll come back to in a moment. But I had no, at least none that I could understand, no existential proof of resurrection. After my first depression, which I've written about three serious episodes of clinical depression, where I were, you know, for months at a time, I wondered, is this the day to end it all because Mm -hmm. death seems preferable to living with this pain Mm -hmm. after i emerged from that and not only survived but thrived i thought okay parker now you can talk about resurrection because you know what you're talking about Mm -hmm. and and it that's some serious digging you know to get to that point so first the silence broke me down and then it gave me a context once i understood what was happening a context in which to rebuild a faith that was rooted in experience—that's an incredible gift. Right. So I was re- able to reclaim, um, you know, those pieces of my Christian faith for which I did have existential evidence. Yeah, yeah. there's—you may know this this, this song um, by Sidney Carter. And I'm I'm struggling now to remember its name. I'll think of it five minutes from now and I'll tell you. <laughs> but he was an English Quaker poet and lyricist, and he wrote a little couplet once that said, Your holy hearsay is not evidence. Give me the good news in the present tense. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> I've, Amen. I've always loved that. Yes. This is why this is why Quakers believe that. The, the scripture never has never stopped being written. Right. I mean, who's to, who's to say that God stopped talking when they way back centuries ago when they canonized the Bible and said, "This is it, folks," and right. everything else is heretical. Right. I mean, that's that's heresy in itself. Right. Talk about that's silencing God, which is the bad kind of silence. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and and so that that was early powerful experience of, of silence. I wasn't ready for it until I was 35 years old when I went to Pendle Hill and encountered Quakerism for, my, for the first time in my life, but I was good and ready for it
1: then. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath with us and join us for this 30 seconds of silence. Your your depression stories and expression of that, you know, kind of reminds me of a modern-day Dark Night of the Soul experience, St. John of the Cross, just that we're always longing for that tangible aspect. And you also write a lot about paradox and contradiction, and, you know, kind of that that place where, of course, you know, we can we can meet something in that space, and there's so much truth in that space, but that tension— and that mystery that we can't define it, we can't grasp it. How, how have you encountered that later in life in terms of um, encountering paradox and contradiction? Do you still find it to be this place of great elation?
2: I do. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how uh, I would have survived without the idea of paradox or the container of paradox to hold a whole lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Because life is constantly about both and. And to, if you try to live it as either or, you get in deep trouble. Either my way or the highway is the clearest illustration of how we get in deep trouble politically. For example, mm. that's that's the failure to hold paradox. Truth is complex, and we would we'd get a lot farther politically if we were willing to sit across the lines of divide that divide us with the, with the attitude that well. You know, I I have some truth, but I certainly don't have the whole truth. If I look at all honestly at my life, I've proven that time and again, probably several times a day. You, you have some truth, but you don't, probably don't have the whole truth any more than I do. So let's see what we can do not to just throw verbal weapons at each other or ideological spears. Let's see what we can do to mix and mingle and interact and create a container where eventually we reach a synthesis that is neither thine nor mine, but is ours. You know, that's what we're desperately longing for in this country. And without the concept of paradox, you don't have it. So one example that I would give, which is actually related to silence, about a paradox that's been very important to me, I first saw it verbalized in a marvelous Dietrich Bonhoeffer book called Life Together, where Bonhoeffer says, let the person who cannot be in community beware of being alone, and let the person who cannot be alone beware of being in community. And when I heard that, having been informed by Merton's treatment of paradox, you know, he begins his, his great journal, The Sign of Jonas, with a little epigraph, I am traveling toward my destiny in the belly of a paradox. hmm mm-hmm. And I, I just instantly, you know, hit on that. I grokked it immediately. And, and so the, the, um, this, this Bonhoeffer's notion makes so much sense to me. If you're in community without being able to be in solitude, you just become a member of the herd, a member of the a part of the, of the crowd. And you can see that in churches all the time. People stop thinking for themselves, because being in solitude and having to confront themselves has been so challenging, and they're looking for a community to tell them, you know, what to say, what to believe, what to think, how to dress, how to act. And, but similarly, if you can't be in community, beware of being alone, because we need relationships to help us hold what we discover in solitude to sort and sift. That's one of the great functions of community. And it's its one of the things that I treasure about the Quaker tradition is that a lot of people, a lot of people don't know anything about Quakerism except the oatmeal that they think we make.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and motor oil. So you know, I I have met
2: people. What's your faith tradition? Quaker. I love your oatmeal. Uh (laughs) The the question behind the question is, where's your hat? (laughs) So, so it's 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 just um, if you can't have the experience of solitude to. To hold in community, you can't sort and sift the true from the false, and Quakers are constantly doing that. So they have two beliefs. One is in the inner teacher, the power of the inner teacher, which this society doesn't believe in. That's why we do education and religion the way we do. We are empty vessels to be filled up with someone else's truth. But the problem with holding that pole of the paradox only, the inner teacher pole, is that we have all kinds of voices inside of us. The voice of ego, the voice of greed, the voice of fear, <clears throat> et cetera, et cetera. They're not all the voices of the inner teacher. And it, it's difficult sometimes to sort them out by yourself. But if you take that to community, where there's this open, tension-holding dialogue, we're, we're sorting and sifting is what's going on, not telling you what to believe or think or do, then you have a better chance of arriving ultimately at the voice of truth in you. So that's a living paradox for me, and it has been ever since. I spent 11 years living in a close-knit community where we worshipped together everyday Quaker style, we ate meals together, we did physical work together, we studied together, we did social action together, we made decisions and so forth.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. We even washed the dishes together.
1: Yeah.
2: Oh, and incidentally, everybody made the same salary. <laughs> it didn't matter that I had a PhD from Berkeley and I was Dean of Studies. I made exactly the same money that an 18 year old who came to cook in the kitchen was making, who was there because he or she didn't know what to do next with their life. And I loved that life. I mean, it, it was hard, but boy, did I learn from it.
0: Parker, I really enjoyed On the Brink of Everything, the new book. So thank thank you, thank you for writing that. Mm. And um, I, one of the ways in which the book, I guess, challenged one of my blind spots, or one of my biases, was in your kind of pushing back at this kind of, I guess, myth in our culture that as people move into their 70s and 80s and beyond, that it's time for them to just kind of retreat into their little monastic cell and spend all of their time in blissed-out contemplation <laughs> and pray, praying for the world and then leave leave the heavy lifting of activism or working for social change to the young Turks. Right. And, um, and, and so that was a really kind of an an opening up for me. And, uh, you know, I'm somebody who's more Mary than Martha. I have to push myself to be to be Martha. And when when I do kind of, you know, channel Martha, it's always, you know, a moment of grace. So it was kind of kind of wonderful to say, okay, well, that, you know, I'm not going to put Martha out to pasture. But what I really want to focus on in my question here, you do have a section where you kind of address the political moment that we find ourselves in right and 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 i don't want to name names but um
2: (laughs) you may notice that the name never appears i
0: I thought that (laughs) was was, a
2: reference (laughs) to the role right
0: that was that was quite 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 well done but um but one of the things that that it occurs to me is that, regardless of however our any one person's political values or 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 party affiliation or whatever may may kind of manifest, that what we all are experiencing is simply how how polarized and how divided this moment seems to be in our culture, in our in our history. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious what You know, and again, speaking about silence, since that's the theme of our podcast, but we could expand that to be certainly your work as a Quaker and your work as an educator. But could you speak just briefly to us about how to meet the division and the mistrust and the kind of rancor? That seems to characterize, you know, certainly social media and, you know, you you know, I love going into into restaurants where they have TVs on, but they have the volume turned down. And so you see, you see, and I don't care if it's CNN or Fox, both sides, you see all these people and they're shouting at one another. And and so the images are the same. It's just maybe what they're shouting about is different. So um, so do you have any thoughts or, or reflections that that this moment inspires for you?
2: Absolutely, and again, a a wonderful question for me. So I make a distinction between people who are holding office and the people who voted them into office. And I think just existentially and functionally and operationally, there is a big distinction because people who occupy positions of high power, we all know what power does especially great power. I, I think my in my experience, many, not all of them are unavailable for genuine dialogue because they are they have roles to play and jobs to finance. The, most people on Capitol Hill, and I know a bunch of them will say I spend 60% of my time raising money for my next campaign, not doing the people's work. So there's for, for me, there's a big distinction between that and the citizens who vote X, Y, or Z into office. And one of the things I say in the book, you know, where I, out of a 240 page book, I devote about eight pages to the 45th president of the United States. And I try to tell what I believe is the truth because I think these are times when political silence is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. I think we have to talk about these things. We know what has happened when people have either been silent or been silenced in the past, mm-hmm. and I could go into that in great detail, but we, we, we know, if you know history, you know that history. But I say in the book, right in the mix of saying the critical things about the office holder, I say— I've come to understand that people who voted for him did so out of a sense of being had economically and culturally by both major political parties. It's a sentence in which I don't spare either major political party. Mm -hmm. And I say I regret the fact, I I say it in different words, that that I was slow to understand that. But this is it is one of the things that is now being revealed by what's going on in the leadership of this country. Equally important, what's being revealed is what it has always meant to be a person of color in this society. Mm-hmm. What it has always meant to be white and poor, what it has always meant to be an immigrant. You know, we we do a great romantic number on ourselves about oh how we welcomed the Italians and we welcomed the Irish and well we didn't we subjected them to misery for that that whole generation and part of the next generation um, so and we put Japanese people in internment camps during World War II I mean mm-hmm. there's nothing new here but there's a lot we haven't wanted to see women. Uh, we could talk for an hour about the subjugation, the oppression, the the constant insult to women in a patriarchal culture that was happy to look away um, mm-hmm. all of that for, for all the time that all of that was happening. My goodness, the, the founders of this country excluded women from the citizens, citizenry of this country. They weren't part of all the we the people. So I take your question to be about how do we the people deal with each other across lines of division? But I felt like first I had to make that distinction. So I think the answer to that is we have to create containers where we help people do two things. One is to understand that if we want to reclaim we the people, it's more important to be in right relationship than it is to be right. Hmm. Uh, that's step number one, mm-hmm. because in truth, a lot of these issues are very complex. I mean, there are economic issues that I'm barely able to understand, if at all. There are socio-political issues that are equally complicated. So you have to create a container of many voices if you want to sort those out and get a little bit closer to what's true, which is a lifelong interest of mine. Get a little bit closer to what's true. And that means listening to those who disagree with you, because they're onto something you're not. And if you stay open-minded and open-hearted, you might discover it. But the second thing is, we need to learn that throwing our ideological points and opinions at each other gets nowhere if you want if you if you want to give up on we the people allow the politics of divide and conquer to flourish mm. it's exactly what's happening right now and it's exactly how every political takeover in the history of the world has been in part accomplished divide and conquer set people at each other's throats So that in the case of a democracy, everything goes down the tubes. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening right now. Uh, Fascist regimes, totalitarian regimes, they they survive by killing off their critics. That's historical fact. Yeah. But you can kill off your critics without using gas chambers, guns, or bullets. You can kill them off with labels of derision, dismissal, insult, derogation. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is going around now. The characterization of Mexicans, the characterization of Muslims, et cetera, et cetera. We We can go on forever. The characterizations of African Americans who've lived for eight generations in poverty and how it's all their fault. That they haven't risen to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I mean, it's it's nonsense.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And you may have re- you may remember that I try to take my own responsibility for this in the book. I not only I not only talk about white privilege, which seems a no-brainer to me, but I talk about my own subtle form of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. I, I say. It's a cop-out for white people to equate white supremacy with people who wear hoods and burn crosses. So my, my answer to what happens then when you invite people into a truth-telling container that can actually hold tension is you, you abandon this notion of throwing your positions at each other, your ideologies at each other, and you start to tell the life stories from which your beliefs come. Mm -hmm. It's really pretty simple, but it takes good facilitation and good leadership in churches, in synagogues, in mosques, in classrooms, in civic associations to get people there. Somebody has to hold the space where they say, whoa, we're not going to throw our beliefs about abortion or the politics of abortion at each other, but we're going to be invited under supervised or guided circumstances to tell each other the life stories that led us to whatever position we hold. Now, I'm I'm naming a process that I've actually seen in action, where abortion and other contentious topics were what was being held in that container. And the storytelling process is incredibly powerful. So that by the end of that weekend workshop, two people who have had very, who have had a a very similar experience with regards to issue X, reveal that they have, have come to two quite different conclusions. And, and the learning is that this is complicated, and and some kind of connection is made through those life stories that would never have been made if we had just announced our conclusions. So you know i've always said truth truth isn't in the conclusions because the conclusions keep changing in every field that i know anything about it's in the conversation mm. if you if you want to live in the truth you have to li- know how to live in the conversation
3: that resonates with so many things. And I'm thinking back, we, a few weeks ago, longer now maybe, uh, we interviewed an African American scholar, Barbara Holmes, Dr. Barbara Holmes, uh, who, about, and she's an expert on African American contemplation and, and the African church and everything. And she made a comment that we needed to come together. She's confirming what you're saying. We need to come together and tell each other our stories. And, yeah. And that idea of, of telling the stories allows for something else to occur. And I'm and and i hearing you, it, it also reminds me of Rilke, kind of, we need to live the questions.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I live by that line from letters to...
3: to a young poet, yeah. Young poet, yeah. Due to the length of this conversation, we will conclude next week with part two of this episode. Please join us as Parker Palmer turns to many other topics, including the poetic verses that speak silence to him, his powerful personal insights into overcoming depression, and the deeply moving tribute to his personal silence hero. Until next week.
1: Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversations about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website. Connect with us on social media on Twitter at SilencePodcast or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit Patreon.com/EncounteringSilence. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/EncounteringSilence to become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being.